we're jumping back into our series on the book of Acts. And with that, I want to start with a story that begins in 1943. In the spring of 1943, I'm not there yet, David, close, close. In the spring of 1943, 40 people, and I have written, they're almost exclusively white men. I saw the list of the 40 names. I did not Google search every one of the names to like actually see a picture of them, but based on the names and my understanding of their roles, I feel confident saying that it was an exclusively, it was 40 white men. So in the spring of 1943, 40 people gathered for a meeting at the William Penn Hotel and began formulating a plan that would eventually become known as the Pittsburgh Renaissance. It was a bold plan to reshape Pittsburgh into a modern city that would be known for its colleges and universities, world-class medical centers, expansive public parks, and revitalized urban center instead of what Pittsburgh had been known for for decades up until that point. Steel mills and smog so thick that some days you couldn't see downtown from the north side. The Pittsburgh Renaissance gave Pittsburgh what we now know as Point State Park. The U.S. Steel Building and the old Alcoa Building downtown were constructed at a time businesses were threatening to leave the city. It's when Carnegie Tech was intentionally invested in and transformed into an elite university and renamed Carnegie Mellon. And it also gave Pittsburgh this structure. How many of you know what that building is called? All right. What's it called? The Civic Arena, yes, in its original form. I think I heard a melon arena in there. But it was originally known as the Civic Arena. You can leave that up for a little while, David. When it was first proposed, people talked about the Civic Arena as a structure that would be as culturally important as the Roman Colosseum. Just do some research in some old Post-Gazette newspapers and you will find this language. It was supposed to be the crown jewel of the Pittsburgh Renaissance, the singular symbol of the city's successful transformation to a modern city. The first proposed location for the Civic Arena, anyone know where it was? Okay, Highland Park. So it was actually first supposed to be in Highland Park. The first proposed location for the Civic Arena was Highland Park. But the people of Highland Park were wealthy and white. They had political, cultural, and economic power, and they mobilized against the plan to build the Civic Arena in their neighborhood. The final defeat of the plan to put the Civic Arena into Highland Park came when a man named Robert King Mellon, who lived in Highland Park, East Liberty area, offered to donate his sprawling estate to the city at no cost to the city to be turned into a public park if the city would call off their plan. 
Nothing like saying, I'll give you my own private 100-acre property that you can use as a public park if you just won't build this structure in our neighborhood. It's recorded that at the city council meeting where Mellon made this proposal, he said this, and again, this is a quote, I am against the proposal by promoters who may think that this particular site, which is now a refuge for birds and wildlife, can be man-made by destruction into something better than God made it. That first proposed site is now the public park we know as Mellon Park. Now, the city needed a new location to build the Civic Arena, and it didn't take long for city leaders to decide on the Lower Hill District. But the proposed 90-acre site wasn't empty land like it had been in Highland Park. It was a predominantly black neighborhood where approximately 8,000 people lived and 1,300 buildings stood. For the city's leaders, 8,000 people can be relocated and 1,300 buildings can be torn down, but a refuge for birds and wildlife must be preserved. At the time, the city's leaders built, though never finalized, plans to build new housing all around the city for all of the people who were supposed to be displaced by the building of the Civic Arena. The majority of those plans, though, I bet you can guess, never actually came to fruition or completion. Families and business owners were given less than fair market value for what they owned, and they were not given a place to move. The Civic Arena was built, and all of the people impacted were forgotten. In 1971, a man named Robert Peace was leading the Urban Redevelopment Authority, or what many of us know as the URA. In an interview with the Post-Gazette reporter, Peace admitted the failure that the Civic Arena project had been. So quote from an interview in the Post-Gazette. He said this, the Lower Hill Project removed about 1,000 units which were occupied by black people. And there was not in the city of Pittsburgh any additional new units earmarked for those people. So it caused a tightening of segregation in black neighborhoods. And to that extent, the Pittsburgh Renaissance contributed to segregation across the city. And this is a, I'm telling you, like, direct quote from what's in the newspaper. Then Peace shrugged and said, we have to learn by doing. We have to learn by doing. In a 2019 report titled Pittsburgh's Inequality Across Gender and Race, Pittsburgh was identified as the worst city in America for black people. A line can be drawn from the Pittsburgh Renaissance and the Civic Arena to today, Pittsburgh being the worst city in America for our black sisters and brothers. 
This is what happens when individual and institutional power is not stewarded well. The people with the most political, economic, and cultural power used it to protect themselves and even enrich themselves and their neighborhoods. And the people with the least power could not protect themselves or their neighborhoods. And as a result, have languished for decades. This is the conversation I want to have this morning. I want to talk about power on both an individual and institutional level. And I recognize that this might be an uncomfortable conversation, maybe even an awkward conversation for us, because as followers of Jesus, we oftentimes think, well, we follow a savior and king who, even though he was God, he laid down his rights to protect and preserve his own life and instead used his own life and allowed himself to be killed for the sake and well-being of others. I think we are confused, maybe, about how, as followers of Jesus, we're to actually think about power. I don't think we like talking about power because I don't think we're sure if it's something Christians should even want, let alone have. Especially when we see so many Christian leaders and Christian institutions using what power they have in evil, harmful, and destructive ways. So, how are we as individual followers of Jesus to think about power? How should we as a church think about power? Is it something we should seek out? Is it something we already have? Is it something we should run from? Three weeks ago, before Palm Sunday and Easter, we talked through Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. It's a story of Peter and John in the temple courts healing a lame man. That's exactly where we pick up today. Peter and John were in the temple courts. They're still in the temple courts. And this man has been healed, and that man is standing next to Peter and John. It begins in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about five thousand. Luke identifies three different groups of people who approach Peter and John. There's the priests who are responsible for the day-to-day running and operations and religious activities within the temple. There's the captain of the temple guard, which is, think of like the University of Pittsburgh and the chief law enforcement official for the University of Pittsburgh. The temple guard is the chief law enforcement official for the temple. And then, Luke tells us, there's the Sadducees. 
The Sadducees are one of the three prominent religious groups in ancient Judaism. There were the Pharisees, which many of us, if we're familiar with the Gospels, we've heard of the Pharisees. There's another group called the Essenes, and then there's the Sadducees. The Sadducees actually trace their history all the way back to a man named Zadok, who was the high priest for Israel during David and Solomon's reigns. But in Jesus' time, the Sadducees had aligned themselves with Rome, and as a result, enjoyed a status among the political, cultural, and economic elite of both the Jewish culture and also Roman culture. In other words, the Sadducees were a connected and powerful group of people. The fact that Peter and John's presence in the temple elicited a response from this group of people is evidence that some of the most powerful members of the Jewish religious establishment and Roman political life, they felt threatened by the apostles and their ministry. Luke tells us the Sadducees in particular were greatly disturbed, that means annoyed, with the apostles for teaching the crowds about Jesus and his resurrection. I'm just going to make this point here. In these first four verses, Luke tells us that the Sadducees are upset with the apostles because they're in the temple teaching people about Jesus' resurrection. Sparing you the details, the Sadducees did not believe in Jesus' resurrection, so you would think that the Sadducees are mostly annoyed with Peter and John because they're teaching the crowds bad theology in the minds of the Sadducees. However, at no point in this story are the Sadducees ever actually going to show any level of concern whatsoever with the apostles' teaching or their theology. Luke says they care about it, and yet nothing about their actions indicates that they actually care about what the apostles were teaching. The Sadducees see themselves as Israel's only legitimate teachers, as Israel's only legitimate religious leaders. And so by posturing themselves in front of the crowds, by Peter and John posturing themselves in front of the crowds as people to teach and to be listened to and who can perform these miracles, Peter and John are perceived to be a threat to the Sadducees' authority and power. And so Peter and John are arrested and thrown in jail. And Luke, and Luke continues, verse 5, Acts 4, verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. Now, Luke doesn't name specifically what this group is. However, theologians, historians, they've identified this group that gathers based on the names that Luke mentions as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the supreme council that oversees all affairs of the Jewish state inside of the Roman Empire. They make all of the final rulings on legal matters affecting the Jewish state, the temple, and the Jewish people. 
and their rulings and decisions carry significant religious, political, and economic implications for every Jewish person. While not a perfect comparison, think of our Supreme Court and the way that its rulings impact our lives. Our Supreme Court, comprised of seven people, make rulings on things like gun control, voting laws, religious freedom, reproductive rights, and health care. And all of their rulings have far-reaching implications for every American citizen and every institution or business in our country. Now, I know that by this time in our story, the Spirit has empowered the apostles to speak in foreign languages on Pentecost. I know about 5,000 men have come to believe in Jesus as their Savior and King. I know that they've just healed a man. But doesn't this seem like a bit of an overreaction? Doesn't it seem a little bit like overkill? To gather the supreme council because two guys were in a temple teaching something you don't like and healing a person that the religious leaders would have known had been at the temple gates begging. It all seems to signal just how threatened the Jewish religious establishment feels by the apostles in their ministry. The temple is the most powerful institution in all of Jewish life. The Sanhedrin is the most powerful governing body in all of Jewish life. And the individual members of the Sanhedrin are some of the most powerful individual people in all of Jewish life. This group only comes together because they believe the apostles are a threat to their power. And in verse 7, this becomes clear. Verse 7 reads, They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? By what power did you do this? Where did you get your authority? Where did you get your power? We're the powerful ones. We bestow power on the people we want to. Your power is not from us. Where in the world are you getting your power from? The Sanhedrin is a group that's supposed to use its power for flourishing. Flourishing means to develop or grow in a healthy or vigorous way, to thrive. They're supposed to use their power to make rulings that will enable every Jewish person to grow increasingly healthy, to live vigorous social, political, economic, and religious lives. And yet, it seems like they're more interested in using their power to ensure they continue to flourish, even if it means the people they're supposed to be responsible for don't. 
you hear echoes of this group of original, the original 40 people in the Pittsburgh Renaissance using their power to ensure the civic arena does not end up in their neighborhood. In verses 8 through 12, Peter does what Peter's been doing since Pentecost. So he's asked, he and John, where do you get your power from? And Peter just does not seem to know any better. I love this about him. He looks at the Sanhedrin and he just answers their question. You want to know where we get our power from? I'd love to tell you. Jesus is the source of our power. Jesus is the name by which we healed this man. Jesus is the chief cornerstone that the builders, by the way, that's you, rejected. And Jesus is the only name under heaven by which you, the Sanhedrin, and everyone else can be saved. It's quite a speech, especially because of the context Peter is standing in front of the most powerful group of people in all of Jewish culture. He's in a room that represents the most powerful institution in Jewish culture. And he does not flinch. You want to know where we get our power? I'd love to tell you where we get our power from. And while I'm at it, I'll remind you, you killed the Messiah, so repent and be saved. And after hearing Peter's speech, Luke tells us the Sanhedrin respond in this way. They're talking amongst themselves. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. Everyone in the city knows they've performed a miraculous sign, and we can't deny it? Like that's what they wanted to do? How do we undermine what they've done? How do we explain it away? How do we tell all the people that what their eyes have seen and their ears have heard hasn't really happened? It's a question that sounds a whole lot like the Sanhedrin's trying to figure out how to gaslight the Jewish people. There's so much in this passage that points to the Sanhedrin's desire to do whatever it takes to maintain their power and to diminish and preferably destroy the apostles' seemingly increasing power. But this one stands out to me. They literally try to find ways to deny the miracle the apostles perform, but they can't figure out how. And so since they can't figure out how, they settle on a different tactic. They'll use their power to silence the apostles. And that's exactly what they try to do. Verse 17 reads, But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we, the Sanhedrin, must warn them, the apostles, to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What makes this particularly evil, at least to me, is that the entire time the Sanhedrin are talking with Peter and John, the entire time they're trying to figure out how to silence the apostles and stop them from speaking and acting in Jesus' name, the healed man is standing right there. Luke tells us throughout the passage, the lame man who's now healed and walking is there. They see the effects of the apostles' ministry. 
They see the effects of the apostles' power through Jesus. They see that a person who was sick and lame is now healthy and whole, and their only interest is stop talking about Jesus. Absolutely no interest in what this could possibly mean for every Jewish woman and man. They're interested only in using their power to protect and enrich themselves. And they seem content to let everyone they're supposed to care for and lead, they're content to let them languish. A few minutes ago, I asked a few questions. How are we as individual people to think about power? How are we as a church to think about power? Is it something we should seek out? Is it something we should run from? I think sometimes we believe power is something every follower of Jesus and every Christian institution like a church, like Garden City, should run from. We tend to look at Jesus and see a savior and king who, even though he was God, laid down his rights and allowed himself to be killed. And because of that, we oftentimes think we need to renounce power in all of its forms. All the while missing the fact that there has never been a person in the history of the world more powerful than Jesus. He was the son of God. He rose from the dead. That's not a person renouncing their power. That's a person choosing to use their power in particular ways. It's a person using their God-given power in disciplined and constrained ways that don't hurt or harm, but instead create opportunities for every person to thrive and flourish, for every person to have the opportunity for an abundant and eternal life. Jesus used his power for flourishing, and so do the apostles. In verses 19 and 20, Peter and John tell the Sanhedrin that they absolutely will not abide by their ruling. I mean, imagine that. Again, it's not a perfect comparison, but imagine being a person standing before the Supreme Court who decides a ruling and says, this is how you need to now go about your life, and that person looking back at the Supreme Court and saying, not going to do it. It's basically what Peter and John do here. The apostles know that their power, rooted and founded in Jesus, is to be used to bring flourishing to as many people as possible. Church, 
We need people and institutions who will use their power for flourishing. Our communities, our city, our state, and our country need people who will use their power for flourishing, who will work inside institutions and organizations, who will build institutions and organizations, who will lead institutions and organizations and use their power for flourishing. Our neighbors and neighborhoods need women, men, families, and institutions that will enable them to thrive especially the vulnerable and marginalized people in our communities. Now, real quick, I recognize that some of us might be sitting here and thinking, this is all well and good, but I'm not a powerful person. I don't have the kind of power you're talking about. And I think we need a moment to acknowledge that we live in a broken, fallen world where unfortunately, we don't all have the same power. Just within this room, some of us, by the mere color of our skin, have more cultural, political, cultural power. Some of us, because of our gender, have more power. Some of us, because we have a microphone, have more power right now. I recognize that in a broken and fallen world, there are different levels of power. And yet we do ourselves a great disservice if we believe that we have no power at all. Every one of us has power. Every one of us bears the image of God. We bear the image of the most powerful being in the universe. Every one of us, therefore, has the power to help others flourish. If we're parents or grandparents, we have power in our grandkids' lives or in our kids' lives. I have a whole heck of a lot of power over Keely, Jay, Joel, Clara, and Everly. And I can use that power in a way that helps them flourish or that causes them to languish. If we work, we have power in our coworkers' lives. Every one of us knows that's true. Every one of us knows, like the person in the organization who doesn't actually have much organizational power but they walk into a meeting and they bring, I don't know, you know what, they bring that dark negative energy. And then the whole meeting's thrown off course because of this one person who technically doesn't actually have all that much organizational power. I've sat in international meeting rooms for an international corporation before and seen like vice presidents completely undone by people at the bottom of the organizational structure because they just brought a bad version of themselves into the meeting. Everywhere we work, we have power. I mean, if we have neighbors, we have power. Because every one of us has had a bad neighbor. 
every one of us, and we know what that can be like. Everywhere we go, we are people who carry power. How are we stewarding it? How are we stewarding the power that we have? When we don't steward our power well, people around us and even entire communities can languish. And real quick, I should have done this earlier. I recognize I'm using a word that I should have defined sooner. This is what languish means. Languish means grow weak or frail, lose vitality, become feeble. This is what happens when we don't steward power well. If I don't steward power well inside of my family, instead of growing tall and strong and thriving, Jay will, in essence, grow weak, lose vitality, and become feeble. If those of us that you've entrusted to lead our community here at Garden City don't steward our power well, this will be a spiritual reality for you. I recognize, and this is my last point really, I recognize that the conversation that we're having in a sense is a first conversation. It's a first conversation. And what probably needs to be a series of conversations about power, because I don't think this is a conversation many of us have had inside of churches before. We're just scratching the surface of all that we need to talk through. And yet, for so many of us, the first step in this conversation is simply realizing that we have power. That we're supposed to have power. And we're supposed to have power because we're made in the image of God and he's entrusted his power to us so that we can help our families, friends, neighbors, and neighborhoods flourish. Thank you for that, Regina. I appreciate the way you always participate. A second step in this conversation is recognizing that because we have power, humility is essential. Power can make us prideful. It can lead us to think we can be independent of others, or it can entice us into believing that we need more power in order to truly be secure and safe. It's an interesting thing that the people who seem to be most powerful also oftentimes seem the most insecure. We must be humble. We must, like Jesus, learn to use the power we have in disciplined and constrained ways. We must, like Peter and John, know that our power is rooted and founded in Jesus, not ourselves. And because of that, we are responsible to and will answer to Jesus for how we steward our power. We are invited to be people who refuse to use our power to protect and enrich ourselves. We are invited to be people who refuse to use our power to protect and enrich ourselves. We are invited to embrace a posture where we use the power we have for the sake of others. Church, we need people and institutions who will use their power for flourishing who will use their power in a way that enables others to thrive, and especially the vulnerable and marginalized in our communities. 
this week as we return to our homes, to our workplaces, our neighbors and neighborhoods, we go there as people with power that God has entrusted to us. And he's entrusted it to us for a purpose, flourishing. How will we steward it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the apostles, Peter and John, their boldness and courage. Thank you for the example this story gives to us on what it means to be people who have power and steward it well. Father, we pray too. Citizens of a city that has experienced incredible injustice. Citizens of a city where we stand seven decades in the aftermath of 40 powerful people making a decision that entrenched segregation. Father, we pray that you, by your power, through us, would finally push back against that. That those unjust realities would be undone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.